Welcome to uh, Adventures Investor in Conversation, uh, another episode that we're looking at art as a investment class. Uh, and I'm delighted to have with me Scott Lynn, who's the CEO of Masterworks, uh, which is uh, featuring in a FT column that I'm doing. Um, Scott, welcome. Thanks for thanks for having me, David. Um, so, Scott, let's jump straight in. Um, I've actually been on the Masterworks platform for a year or two now, and I have to say I'm always very impressed with the modern artists you've got on there for an English or British audience you've got we had some Banksy's on there um, <laughs> slightly well known in the UK um, and I just want to really just I want to because I talk about the FT column I talk about what Masterworks is but let's just skip over the very basic so in, in effect Masterworks which was which was originally an American platform but is now open globally for uh, sophisticated high net worth and experienced investors um, it, it's effectively a kind of fractional ownership of uh, key bits of modern art structured as a as an SPV, a special purpose vehicle. So you're almost like buying shares in a company that owns one particular art piece of art. Is that a, a fair summary? Yeah, that's correct. So we we go out and we we purchase a painting with our own balance sheet capital, and then we literally yep. file that painting as a public offering with the SEC here in the states. Uh, okay. So very similar to how companies go public, we take paintings yep. public every every week. And you've done this now for how many paintings have you effectively taken public, so to speak? I think we're up to 150, 160 now. These these tend to be paintings valued between $1 million and $30 million um, with with kind of an average price of around 5 or $6 million. Uh, so we're, we're doing a painting now about every every five, five, six days. And what, what draws you to particular types of paintings? You, we'll talk a bit more about the fact that you're very focused on kind of modern contemporary art, but there's a lot of paintings out there, everything from old masters through to Banksy's. What, what draws you to particular types of paintings? What are the criteria that, to use investing language, how do you do your stock selection? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we think about the art market just like you would think about any other asset class. So we're looking at ultimately uh, risk adjusted returns within the art market and and volatility and returns tend to correlate to artist market primarily yeah so we're, we're first selecting artist markets that we think have uh, good sharp ratios effectively right they're appreciating yeah. quickly with lower volatility and then once we select the artist market our acquisitions team goes out and sources often hundreds of paintings by that artist to to decide what to purchase. Okay, and it's important to say that you've also built a big database. So, again, to use this the metaphor of stock selection, uh, when people look screen through a big stock market, they find a particular share they like. They use certain key fundamental metrics based on data. You've got a bigger, you've got a large database out there. How big is that database of transactions? Well, you know, it's pretty crazy. The, the art market is, has been around for, for literally centuries. I mean, Sotheby's is 275 years old, which is one of the, the major auction houses. But there, there hasn't really been um, uh, kind of good data sets to consume as, as a third party. So the way that we've, we've built our database of art market returns, frankly, is from buying paper auction catalogs going back decades. Mm -hmm. So okay. we, you know, we have thousands of auction catalogs that, that we found and purchased and have a team of 30 or 40 interns that, that literally record the data out of those catalogs. Um, and that's frankly an ongoing process. I think most of our data now goes back 
um, to the 1970s in a statistically significant way. Prior to that, it, it becomes less significant, but it's it's always something that we're we're trying to improve. And just one small kind of modern updating. You've not those that that database. You've not tended to, or have you, included much of the kind of modern digital art that's kicking around out there? Everything to do with NFTs, or have you tended to stick with the mainstream, mostly liquid kind of? I say liquid in terms of trading and activity. Um, modern contemporary art, or have you dipped your toe in crypto? It's it's a it's a great question. It's a it's a timely question with uh, with where the crypto markets are today. But you yeah. know, our our <laughs> position has always been that. We don't believe NFTs are a strategic asset class yet. And when we say strategic asset class, we, we, we literally just mean the definition of uh, can, can we show that NFTs are necessarily appreciating in a statistically significant way? And can we show that they lack correlation between other asset classes? Um, and frankly, we've never been able to, to actually prove either of those. I think there's a lot of hype in the media around around certain types of NFTs and how they've exploded in value. But there's never been anyone who's done robust index construction on the NFT market. Many of these NFTs go to um, go to to marketplaces like OpenSea, where they they never even sell for the first time, let alone sell so yeah. multiple times to understand their returns. So I think I think it's I think it's an interesting space. Um, you know, we're monitoring it, but it's not not core to what we do today. Okay, so uh, one last thing as well. The core of what you do, though, is you're a reasonably big player in art markets already, aren't you? You've had a lot of you've had a lot of paintings on your system. Um, how bigger how big a position are you? Are a, are you a kind of whale in the modern contemporary art markets? Definitely within contemporary, we're we're recognized as the largest the largest buyer in the art market at this point. Um, you know, we we don't actively purchase paintings in the old master segment. We can talk about why that is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as well as impressionism. But uh, but within contemporary and, and and some modern, we're we're more or less regarded as the biggest buyer. Okay, okay. I, I think I saw quoted somewhere at some point you represent something like five percent of kind of trading activity in the market. So you're a reasonably big player. Yeah, I mean, we, we have 200 employees based here in New York City that, that do nothing but um, kind of collect research on the art market, do data analysis. Our acquisitions team is, is sourcing paintings. Our private sales team is selling paintings. So we're, we're very active. Uh, uh, one last question before we just go on to looking at it as an asset class. You're, reasonably, you're pretty well capitalized, aren't you? So what are the concerns with all kinds of, in effect, fractional ownership? Uh, even though you actually said you run this with a special purpose vehicle, is the the company who runs it goes bust and then you can't access and everything. But you t tell us, you're reason to be well capitalized. And uh, as I understand it, we've talked before, the SEC have got some quite tight rules about looking after investors' money so that if you go bust, the SBV still got access to the art. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, Masterworks as a firm uh, raised $110 million last October at a valuation north of a billion uh, the business is is, is profitable now, um, and our our SPVs, the the individual investment vehicles, are structured as bankruptcy remote vehicles. Okay. So, in the event that Masterworks was not around, those those investment vehicles would would not go bust, as as you say. Okay, so let's just dive a little bit into it. So, you do a lot of work in contemporary art. Um, uh, uh, listeners won't be able to see the chart that Scott and I have got in front of us. Um, but it, it shows uh, the valuated art indices versus the S&P 500, classic benchmark there, since 1995. And contemporary art's done very, very well. Um, 
So 13.8% price appreciation on average over the long term. So how does uh, contemporary art in particular shape up with comparisons with other key asset classes? Uh, on paper, it looks pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when we think about uh, contemporary art versus uh, the S&P, um, you know, in general, it, it, it performs similarly, maybe slightly, slightly better. Uh, the volatility is slightly better. The sharp ratio is, is slightly better, depending on the time period you're measuring. Um, but in general, it, it, it just has a lower correlation factor. So we, we tend to think about art in a portfolio as providing equity, private equity-like returns, but having uh, lower correlations. So it, it just acts as a good diversifier for an investor who wants to diversify away from the more typical asset classes. Um, let's just talk a bit about inflation. Um, we've had some periods in the past of quite high inflation. The 1970s was on everybody's minds at the moment. And I think you said earlier on, you've built up this database that does sometimes go back to that era. Any sense of how uh, contemporary art particularly does during higher inflationary periods? We get this question often because obviously art is a, is a real asset and real assets are, are thought of as inflation hedges. I think that, that when you look at the data, you see that contemporary art performs independent of the inflationary period. So whether there's, there's high inflation or whether there isn't, the appreciation rates um, are somewhat similar. So we, we think of it as uh, you know, a, a good asset class to, to be allocated to independent of inflation. And what about volatility? Obviously, equities are quite volatile. Uh, private equity less so, but that's partly a function of its fundamental illiquidity and the way in which valuations are driven. Um, gold uh, is another classic asset class. Is, is actually, in recent years, been quite low volatility, actually. Where does art stack up in terms of volatilities? Is it, is it as volatile as, as equities? And they've been very volatile in the last few years. Or is it, is it closer to private equity or is it closer to gold? Which is, and actually, probably at the bottom, you've probably got risk-free assets like government bonds, although actually they're not particularly um, not free of volatility at the moment with interest rates going up. Yeah, it, it really depends on the, on the segment of the art market. <clears throat> so it's somewhat of a, of a nuanced response. But <clears throat> if, you look at, if you look at something like contemporary art, contemporary art, in general has has higher volatility. My favorite example is moving back in time and looking at an artist like Monet. So Monet, I think, is, is one of the, the best examples of a very low volatility artist who also has a low appreciation rate. His appreciation rate is roughly six or 7% on an annualized basis, which is much lower than, than many of the contemporary artists we track. But, but surprisingly, he has a sharp ratio above one All right. because his volatility is, is four or 5%. So I think that's that's a great example of an artist mm, who mm. whose work has literally been traded for hundreds of years, and throughout that century plus timeline, the volatility has has decreased to where now returns when buying a Monet are are pretty incredibly predictable. Well, I, I, I'm putting on this point, but would Banksy, for instance, because I mentioned him earlier. Um, would he be more volatile? Because he's done very well in recent... Well, I mean, if you chart, put a chart of him in the recent years, it would be straight up because uh, he's sort of come yeah. from nowhere. Yeah, so, uh, but has he been more volatile by comparison? Yeah, te te technically, he's he's been more volatile. Now, now maybe the underlying question is there is how, how do we think about downward vol versus versus yeah. versus upward uh, vol? Upward vol, yeah. um, uh, You know, Banksy is one of the very first artists that we 
went into maybe um, three or four years ago that was a little bit Steve so he was a bit more speculative than than what we we typically buy and for people who aren't in the art world that probably sounds strange thinking of Banksy as speculative but from an art world perspective he he doesn't have a gallery he's yeah. anonymous so yeah. the art world infrastructure doesn't typically support him yeah. there's not that much work you know he's he's a little bit of a strange figure to um, to figure out within the context of the the more traditional art market but it but at that time when we started buying him i think his historical returns were 13 14 15% we we had lots of signals that that made us believe that we thought his market would accelerate. You fast forward to today, his market's grown, I think, two to three hundred percent since then. Yeah. Um, so it's really, really just exploded, and that that wasn't entirely predictable. But um, but obviously, you know, in 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 the context of volatility, it's very high volatility because his growth has been his growth has been so extreme. And what you say there about Banksy just sort of props another question. When you look for a, a relatively new artist by comparison with a Monet, you, you mentioned some of the characteristics that you look for typically in artists that you would look to, to invest in, certainly follow by data and then invest in. Um, you know, uh, it, it, their marketability, um, their popularity. What are the kind of things that, what's, what's, the, what's the magic formula that gets put together where you go, I, I want Banksy, but I don't want, I'm not an expert or not, but somebody else. Are there, what are the key variables you're looking for? Yeah, we, that that's obviously starts to, to get to uh, to some of our secret sauce. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> but, 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 but very high level. The very first thing that, that we care about is, is there enough data to understand the artist market? Yeah. And the vast majority of artists, there's there's not enough data. Um, yeah. Today, if you, if you think about the number of artists that trade at public auction, there's approximately 7,000 artists that trade at public auction we're only buying 75 of those artist markets. Okay. So we're focused on a very, very small subset. Uh, many of them are well-known well-known names like Basquiat, Banksy, Picasso, yeah. et cetera, but, but yeah. some of them are, are less well-known. So we're, we're focused on understanding data density, different things about that data that make us believe that the artist market will continue to accelerate. And then we're also looking at cultural significance factors um, broadly defined. And when we talk about cultural significance, we try to quantify that into three different metrics. Um, the first is what institutions or museums collect a given artist and how, how is that trending? Um, the second is how global is the demand for a given artist? Are people around the world buying that artist or is that artist very country specific? Um, and the last is when an artist is exhibited, what other major artists are they exhibited with? So think of that almost yeah. as like a social graph dynamic within yeah. within yeah. the art market. So those that that's what we use to to quantify cultural significance, and and some of that feeds into how how we think about the investment thesis with a particular artist. Okay, I've got. I just want a couple of last questions. Uh, we mentioned you mentioned sharp ratio at the beginning, so. For those who don't understand it, it's effectively a way of, of measuring risk and return together. Um, and generally, the higher the positive sharp ratio, the better. Um, and, and using sharp ratio, where you, you bring together both volatility and returns, how does art or the contemporary art um, compare with other asset classes? Well, it, it, the, the, the sharp ratio of contemporary art overall, I would say, is roughly equivalent to, to other asset classes. 
Um, if you go to the Masterworks website, one of the things that we've started doing recently, which uh, I think is, is super cool, is that we've started publishing sharp ratios for individual artist markets. Yeah. So if you're on the Masterworks website, you can see the, the sharp ratio for that, that artist market. And most of the artist markets that we're focused on today have sharp ratios above uh, 0.8, some above one. The highest sharp ratio we, we track is an artist named Nara, who has a sharp ratio of around 1.7, which for those those people that know sharp ratios, that's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, it really, like any asset class, it just depends on the segment. Um, but, you, you know, maybe one one other question that I think you asked earlier, which I didn't I didn't fully answer, is if you look at returns in the art market very broadly, um, they're they're correlated to recency, but in very wide increments. And what I mean by that is if you look at the appreciation rate of contemporary art, it's roughly 14 percent. If you look at the appreciation rate of modern art going back, um, call it 100 years, 75 to 100 years, that appreciation rate is eight or nine percent. Going back 100 years prior to that, Impressionism appreciates at six or seven percent. And then when you go back two or three hundred years, old masters appreciate at two or three percent. So right. I think what this tells us when we when we take a step back is that appreciation is related to recency, but in generational increments. Yeah. Um, the type yeah. of painting that you want to hang on your wall is not the same type of painting that your great grandparents want to hang on their wall. Yeah. And and you see yeah. that throughout history. So we do see these artist markets change, but we see them change over decades, sometimes over centuries rather than than within years. And there's a fascinating echo there of the way that equities operate because, you know, fast growth companies tend to be growth companies uh, and tend to have a very high valuation. They last for five, ten years, uh, quite typically the, that, that cycle, maybe longer with some of the American tech companies. And then they get a bit boring and then their P ratios, their price to earnings ratios start to fall back again. So yeah. there's an echo. There's an echo of that kind of value versus growth, but over a much longer period. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, we think of a lot of these these emerging artists almost as venture like bets. Um, yeah, the more mature yeah. they get, they sort of move into private equity like bets. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, eventually they turn into government bonds <laughs> when they're one or two percent a year. Uh, okay, so um, I suppose that then prompts my sort of my last question, which is it, overall contemporary art's done very well. Nice straight line we were talking a bit about earlier over the last couple of decades. I suppose, you know, the cynic in me, and I am a cynic because I'm a journalist, always gets worried by straight lines going up. Yeah, um, because they always go, well, what could go wrong? What are the risks? Yeah, so to, to analyze risk in art, I think I think it's important to understand what drives uh, prices within the art market. And and we believe there's two things that primarily drive prices within the art market. Um, the first is that when an artist is, is is creating paintings during their lifetime, obviously they're producing more and more art and then they pass away. So supply at that point in time ends. It's, it's absolutely yeah. finite. And then as time progresses, the collectors that own those paintings donate those paintings to museums. Yeah. So it's this very unique asset class where you actually have declining supply for most of these major artist markets. Yeah. And I, I like to use lots of anecdotal examples around that. Um, Jackson Pollock is is a great one. So uh, one of the, the most famous painters um, in American history, you know, these, these kind of drip splatter paintings, 
Yeah. Um, I think now there's only 21 drip paintings left in private collections. And if you look at those 21 paintings that are left, almost all of those paintings are frankly B or C examples, yeah. but they still sell yeah. for $35 million because if a collector wants to own a Jackson Pollock, that's all that's left. So you, you, most asset classes, you, you have um, growing supply, right? There's, there's more gold being mined every day. There's more homes yeah. being built every day. There's more companies being, being started every day. But you do see declining supply in these, these major artist markets. The, the second thing that our prices are correlated to is just growth in the top 1% on a global basis. Yeah. Yeah. So the wealthier people get around the globe, yeah. um, we believe the more art prices go up. And, and it is important to emphasize the around the globe dynamic because you can buy a painting in New York, you can put it on a plane and you can sell it in Hong Kong. Yeah. So art does almost behave as a, um, as its own currency in, in some ways. Um, so, so when you think about risk, it's really things that could disrupt the top 1% on a global basis. And, you yeah. know, the, the, the best example of that, frankly, is, is the war with Ukraine right now where, if you rewind 15 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago, Russian oligarchs were probably yeah. 15, 20% of the art market. Um, luckily today, it's it's insignificant, like they're really not buying paintings at all. But, um, you know, if, if, if this would have happened 15 or 20 years ago, I think we could have seen a significant drop in art prices with them exiting the, the market. So it's really any policy on a country specific yeah. basis or any change globally that impacts the top 1% can can impact our prices. Absolutely, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned because I was going to ask you about that. Um, I suppose my last risk, which I would probably look at is, I look at a lot of alternative assets that become more mainstream and by the process of becoming more mainstream, it introduces its own risk elements into it. Private equity, when I first started looking at it 20, 30 years ago was quite, you know, it was quite specialist, very, very institutionally focused. It's still institutional focused, but there's more retail involvement. Um, and look at other alternative assets. Infrastructure started off as a kind of very, uh, very specialist niche market. It's now become mainstream. But as something becomes mainstream, it suddenly beca something becomes so so dominant and so powerful that it starts to it's begin to develop its own dynamics. And, and you can sometimes have, and so a good example is in private equity, Private is so big now that they're busily trading assets back and forth between each other to, to try and establish liquidity. So yeah, by the very the, process... Yeah, a lot of the secondary fund dynamics. Yeah. That work that way, yeah. So by the very process of mainstreaming, as we want to get more liquidity, it puts, it puts stress upon the alternative asset because investors are constantly asking for valuations. That's certainly true in private equity. And people have to come up with ways of making exits and realizations. So the, the very process of mainstreaming something, i.e. making it more democratizable, making it more accessible, does always introduce its own complications, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, we're, we're still in the very, very early stages of seeing art as an asset class securitized. Um, you know, the art market trades roughly $60 billion a year. So it, it is it is quite a large market. I think, you know, our view is it's probably the largest asset class that's never been securitized. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think we I think we have decades really to go before we start to see a lot of a lot of similarities between art and, and other asset classes. OK, Scott, thank you very much. Thanks, Evan.